Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor, a podcast host, uh, work on a farm. I do a lot of different things. Uh, but when I was a kid and I really thought genetics were cool, I thought I would get into the field of genetic counseling. And I, I was really excited about genetics books at a really early age. And back when I would look at them, they would always be the strange books where they would have the images of people with uh, the black bar over their eyes. So you couldn't see their identity. But you would learn about things like Kleinfelter syndrome and other uh, Turner syndrome, all these diseases that occurred at the chromosomal level that manifested as issues that were inherited because of chromosomal level problems. But as time went on, I changed gears a little bit, but I've always been interested in the field of genetic counseling and the roles that it could play. And today it's bigger than ever. And I should mention that I'm outside in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so you hear some background noise today. So a little bit different, long story. But um, today we, I'm going to speak with a genetic counselor about the modern era of genetic counseling and how how areas like genomic sequencing can play an important role in the process. I'm speaking with Pilar Magoulis. She's a certified genetic counselor, uh, associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Human Genetics at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. It, that's at the Texas Children's Hospital. So welcome to the podcast, Pilar. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, this is really cool. I mean, this podcast, we always talk about biotechnology. We talk about the different edges of it, but really the basis of the whole thing starts at genetics. And in human genetics, thinking about what a genetic counselor does. And so you're a certified genetic counselor. I'm, I'm an uncertified one. I just tell people not to reproduce <laughs> all the time lately. Um, I guess the, the thing that really would be the best place to start is what is the traditional role of a genetic counselor? That's great. And, and again, thank you for highlighting genetic counseling and, and genetic counselors as a whole. So typically genetic counselors are healthcare professionals that have training in science of medical genetics, as well as counseling. And if you were to ask me this question about what is the traditional role of a genetic counselor, or even 20 years ago, I would say that traditionally genetic counselors work in a clinical setting, in a hospital or academic center, usually working in prenatal field, working with couples at risk of having a baby with a genetic condition, or in pediatrics, seeing a lot of kids with underlying genetic conditions or risk of those conditions, or in the adult or cancer settings. However, re recently in the past few years, the roles that genetic counselors encompass have continued to expand, whereas many of us now work in industry uh, with genetic testing companies, in the research arena, in education, and with advocacy organizations, and also in non-clinical or direct patient-facing roles. But like everything else, the traditional roles of something like genetic counseling have radically changed because of the new technologies like genomics and everything else we can do. Right. So what kind of training do you need to be a modern genetic counselor? And do you expect that demand in that field will increase as we have more genomics levels tools? Oh, certainly, yes. And so many genetic counselors, as far as the training that we receive, 
Um, usually we get our undergraduate degrees in a field such as biology, genetics, biochemistry, or my background was in psychology and zoology. And to become a genetic counselor, you have to go to graduate school. And there are around 50 graduate programs in genetic counseling around the United States and several in other countries. And this number of programs has continued to increase year over year because of the huge need for genetic counselors in the workforce. Admissions usually requires the students to have had some shadowing with a genetic counselor and also direct experience in counseling. And so a lot of our students come a bit from a very strong science background, but they might not have that psychosocial counseling experience. And so we like the students to have more of that balance between the science and also the counseling. And they can get this through volunteering at different um, crisis lines or crisis text lines um, with different um, abuse organizations, support groups. And then usually the students will obtain a master of science specifically in genetic counseling. The programs are about two years in length and throughout that duration, our students get training in all aspects of clinical genetics, as well as now we're starting to add more laboratory genetics with variant interpretation uh, so that upon graduation, they can really enter the workforce in their preferred specialty area, whether that's clinical care, or an industry, research, or education. There's been in the kind of the second part to your question about the demand, um, that's actually been a huge area in our field. So in 2015, our National Society of Genetic Counselors actually performed a workforce analysis that looked at what is the, um, is there a workforce shortage of genetic counselors? And indeed, it, it did show that, that we are very short um, in genetic counselors, and there's a shortage of genetic counselors engaged in direct patient care. And according to uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employment of genetic counselors is only continue to project to grow um, between 2020 and 2030 about by about 26%, which is much faster than the average for all occupations. And so as it stands, even today, there are many, many more job openings for genetic counselors than there are genetic counselors or upcoming graduates to fill them. For example, we most of the programs only take around eight to maybe 15 or so students per year. Um, and all of our graduates have jobs in place months before they even graduate um, because they really have um, their choice of jobs because there are so many jobs available. I think with genetics becoming so much more mainstream in, in healthcare and in every aspect of health, um, not just rare diseases, the importance of having someone interpret that genetic information to that individual is going to be more crucial um, even in the future. It, yeah, it's really kind of the front edge of personalized medicine, right? Because exactly. you're, you're, you're looking at these genetic differences that underlie potentially uh, different disorders. But you, you talked about uh, patient direct, or I think, I don't can't remember the term you used there. Patient facing, yeah. Patient facing. But, you know, so how do I know if I need a genetic counselor? Is this something that is for, say, expecting couples only, or is it really something maybe of folks of different ethnicities um, that have certain high risks that, that could be good to identify before they are conceiving? Or, or what's, what, what's the best application? Who's your client? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people, when we say I'm a genetic counselor, they have no idea usually what that means or, or who would even need to see, see a genetic counselor. And the more I talk about it, the more they see, well, oh, yeah, I do have this in my family. And so I think there are many different reasons why someone would want to or should see a genetic counselor. Some of the more common reasons that we see are if there's a family history of birth defects, such as a hole in the heart 
or a suspected or known genetic condition, those people might want to know, well, what's the chance that I could have children with that same condition that might run in my family? Um, also, individuals who are looking to start a family and they're wondering if they're at an increased risk for certain genetic conditions just based on their ethnicity or family history. We know that people of certain ancestries have a higher risk of certain genetic conditions. And so we'll often see couples um, before they even are pregnant to talk about those risks and what testing might be available. We also see pregnant couples. So where they're already pregnant, where there might be some abnormalities that are noted on ultrasound um, with the baby or the fetus and talk about the risks and testing available. And then what I do, I'm in, in pediatrics at Texas Children's Hospital. So we see a lot of kids um, referred to us with delays in development, with autism, with seizures, with growth problems, um, sometimes with connective tissue disorders such as Marfan syndrome or chromosome abnormalities that you mentioned like Turner syndrome and Kleinfelter where we try to determine if there is an underlying genetic explanation or if we have a diagnosis, um, provide counseling. And then kind of a big area now is, is adults we see with a family history of cancer. So particularly cancers at a young age, so under 50 years of old when they're diagnosed or certain cancers that cluster together. So if we see a family where there's breast and ovarian cancer within that family and a mother or grandmother or an aunt or colon cancer um, or different types of cancers that cluster together, we definitely should see those individuals because there are hereditary conditions that predispose someone to cancer. And so we, we see a lot of families for that indication um, to offer testing and screening uh, to really prevent the risk of cancer if possible. Yeah, then maybe let's go through these kind of uh, chronologically, you know, from early to late. Um, if you're talking about prenatal genetic testing, and, and this has been done for a long time, amniocentesis, that kind of thing, um, to screen for high-risk parents, you know, what's going But what's going on today in terms of maybe less invasive ways of screening fetuses, maybe with amniotic cells or whatever? Are there other uh, improved ways that you can improve detection of problems and even be able to prescribe intervention like surgery, you know, fetal surgery, that kind of thing. Right. Yes, definitely. And so one of the newer technologies is called non-invasive prenatal testing. And so um, screening for genetic conditions in pregnancy can occur either in non-invasive ways, such as doing blood tests in the mother or invasive ways, as you mentioned, such as an amniocentesis where we're directly sampling amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby. Non-invasive testing um, is we're doing a blood sample on the mother and we're actually looking at fetal DNA that is sort of present in the mother's circulation. And so this is a non-invasive way to actually look at the, the baby's DNA um, through the mother's blood sample. And so this test has a very high sensitivity for detecting chromosome abnormalities such as Down syndrome and also looking at the sex chromosomes for Turner syndrome or Kleinfelter syndrome. And it can be done very early on in the first trimester. Usually this is offered now to most couples. A lot of people think of it as the gender test. Um, we don't necessarily think of it in that way, um, but more so it's, it's a, a test that's offered to couples or individuals where they're at a lower risk of having a child with a genetic condition, such as women under 35, um, more extensive genetic testing for couples, such as um, as done by an amniocentesis. Um, traditionally, these procedures look at the actual chromosomes to see if there's any missing or extra pieces of large or small parts of chromosome material. Um, but one of the newer technologies that we've been able to do on these, these samples 
is looking not just at the chromosomes, which I kind of describe when I'm, I'm explaining this to families. A chromosome is kind of like a volume of an encyclopedia. Um, and so we're looking to see if there's an entire volume that's missing or extra, or if there's, you know, a hundred pages that are missing or extra. What we're able to do now is not just look at the volumes, but the actual words on each individual page um, in a test called exome sequencing. And so we're not just able to look at the books anymore. We're able to look at each individual word to see if there's one little typo that might impact that gene and how that gene is supposed to function. Um, and so it's, it's, it's incredible how fast we've gotten to this point. Um, this exome sequencing we've been doing in the clinical setting in, in children and adults um, for about 10 years now, but now we're doing it in fetuses. Um, and with that comes some challenges with just interpretation of the results that you see, because we can get a lot of information from this and some of which we still don't know how to interpret. It's really interesting because you answered the, my next question already, but I just want to emphasize it because maybe some listeners were thinking the same thing I was, was, well, nowadays in the, in the days of whole genome sequencing, why don't we just sequence mom and sequence dad, and then you get a pretty good idea what's up with the fetus. But that doesn't account for chromosomal abnormalities. And so how, how frequent are those kinds of things? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. And so a lot of the conditions that we see, they might just happen for the first time in the child or what we call a de novo change. And so there's absolutely no family history. There's nothing in the mom or dad's DNA that was passed on. And so these are changes that happen right at the time of conception. So even if you were to do screening in either parent, you still would miss some of these conditions. There are many conditions, though, that do follow more of a kind of traditional pattern of inheritance where parents might be carriers of a genetic change, unaffected themselves, but then can pass on that change to their child. Um, and so there is routine carrier screening that's available now to couples, um, even before they get pregnant, to screen for hundreds of different what we call recessive conditions, such as cystic fibrosis, um, spinal muscular atrophy, Tay-Sachs disease, where parents can see if they're carriers of any one of hundreds of different conditions, um, being a carrier, we're all carriers of probably eight or 10 different conditions and we just might never know it. And it doesn't affect us because we have another copy of the gene that works correctly. Where it becomes important is if our partner is a carrier of the same exact condition, um, because then there can be a, a one in four or 25% chance of passing that on to the child. So there are many different types of conditions that we can screen for now even before someone, uh, a couple decides to get pregnant, and then even during pregnancy. So that kind of preemptive screening is now available for how many different diseases? So hundreds. Um, yeah, so we call it, yeah, the preconception or carrier screening. Um, different labs have different number of genes that they screen for, and it seems like they all you know, kind of try to one-up each other saying, we have 200 conditions we screen for, we have 300. <laughs> um, and so depending on the lab that the sample is sent to, they have a list of genes and conditions. So it can be in the hundreds. Um, and certainly some of those are incredibly rare, but, um, and the carrier frequency. So the chance that someone is a carrier of the condition can vary certainly by ancestry or ethnic background. And so we always gather that information to kind of get a sense of what is the likelihood that we'll even find a change. And is that uh, more advisable for older parents or are those 
changes that typically are reflected from, and this is kind of a selfish question, by the way. I, I, <laughs> we've, we've been at it for a while trying to trying to put together a, a, a critter, and uh, it, and so just kind of asking, um, is it something that more more likely to have chromosomal abnormalities as you have advanced age in the male or female? Great question again. And so typically with the recessive conditions, those are not um, impacted by the maternal or the paternal age. Certainly with maternal age, increased maternal age, we do see an increase in chromosome abnormalities such as Down syndrome, which is an extra copy of chromosome 21. Um, and so usually we say over 35 is what we call advanced maternal age, even though I think 35 is young and it, it seems crazy to, <laughs> to call it advanced. Um, but we know that as we women get older, our eggs um, also get older and there's a higher chance for chromosome changes to occur where the chromosomes don't separate as they should. And so we do see an increased chance for things like trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. For the paternal age, what we see, it's not so much the chromosome um, abnormalities that we see with increasing paternal age. And I think that cutoff is closer to the, the mid 40s or, or 50s is what we'll see is more likely for there to be a new dominant um, kind of what I said before, a de novo or a new misspelling in a gene that happens right in, in the sperm. So not that the father passed on this change, but there's more likely to be these new dominant conditions that happen just in the sperm cell. Um, and so it's a different type of genetic conditions that we can see with increased paternal age compared to increased maternal age, which is more chromosomal versus kind of the spelling change that we see in the other case. You know, you talk about the volumes, you talk about the changes that happen with parts of books missing or even sentences or words. Right. But what about the library itself? I mean, are we able to look at anything in methylation changes Then methylation being decorations of DNA? Think of it that way. Are there things that can be learned from that or is that being considered in current genetic counseling? That's a yeah, wonderful question again. And so methylation, we usually think of um, certain genes are expressed or turned on or turned off, depending sometimes on if that gene is on the chromosome that came from the mother or the father. Um, there are certain conditions that we see where there are problems with methylation. We don't have a general screen for all methylation abnormalities. I think there are some individuals in some labs that are looking at kind of a more genomic methylation approach. Uh, right now, when we see a child that we suspect has uh, a condition that's caused by abnormal methylation in a gene or on a chromosome, we send specific testing um, for that particular condition. I saw a child um, in clinic uh, uh, recently where we suspect that, and so we're going to be sending dedicated testing for that condition um, where there's an abnormal methylation or where the genes um, didn't turn off the way that they should. This is really fascinating. I'm glad we're doing this. We're speaking with Pilar Magulas. Uh, she's a certified genetic counselor and associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Human Genetics at the Texas Children's Hospital in the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, this is a Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. If you're like me, you think of Europe as a place of groovy fashion and excellent regional cuisine. The trains run on time, and everyone smokes cigarettes that kind of smell good. It's a place where you can eat a pig face, and wear striped pants and fit right in. But not everything is so swell. They charge for water in restaurants. 
you need to use the WC, you gotta come up with a Euro. They call the children's game soccer football, which is a high crime and suitable for The Hague. They also have regressive policies with respect to crop genetic engineering. The scientists of the EU don't agree, but activist groups and NGOs sing the praises of the policies that restrict useful technologies from ever reaching the farmer's field. But change is afoot, as England contemplates allowing genetic engineering for its farmers and scientific organizations scream for the non-scientific barriers to be lifted. The European Commission is considering change in how they may regulate crops derived from gene editing. And gene editing is that subtle, site-directed mutation that can emulate natural changes. The process is likely to speed variety development for European farmers. Now there is a public feedback period for the next few days. It's open to you, and you should comment. Those sworn to oppose biotechnology are circulating cut-and-paste manifestos that can be submitted via their website, so you should fight back. Share your thoughtful opinion on the technology, which means if you're a scientist or science-minded citizen, you might suggest that the technology is safe and vital component of future agriculture. If you're a farmer from North or South America, you might say that the technology is the work of Satan and Monsanto, and that the European Union should continue to import seeds from North and South America. Whatever your opinion, be heard you have to go to the European Commission website, which is ec.europe.eu. Go to the section called Have Your Say and look under Published Initiatives. Under the initiatives, you'll find one that's called Legislation for Plants Produced by Certain New Genetic Techniques. That's the place where you'll find the feedback form. Whatever your opinion, make sure that you are heard. Just be sure to write Soccer Sucks at the end. So now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Pilar Magulis. She's a genetic counselor at Texas Children's Hospital. And we're talking about the manifestations of different genetic changes and how people are counseled, either prenatally or postnatally, and understanding uh, their genetic conditions or potential uh, genetic conditions and how that can help families. And, you know, um, I should mention, um, you did win an award for this from, it's it's called the Invito Award uh, for uh, genetic counseling. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I'm kind of asking you to kind of talk about yourself here. I hope you're comfortable with that. Talk about this award because I think it's really great. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I, it's so <clears throat> It was, it's an annual award that um, is actually recognized by National Society of Genetic Counselors, which is our organization um, for genetic counseling, and then sponsored by Invite, one of our genetic testing labs. And the Heart of Genetic Counseling Award is um, awarded to genetic counselors in light of the recognition 
and care that they provide to their patients. And one of the things that um, is very humbling to me is that this award is you have to get nominated directly from a family or a patient. Um, and so a patient will submit a nomination on behalf of you, kind of sharing their story of their experience with their genetic counselor. And then the reviewers, uh, the award committee reviews the, the all of the applications and they choose uh, a few finalists. And then they make the announcement at our annual conference, which was held um, just a few weeks ago. And so I was very surprised that I was even nominated that a family would think to write something about me and, and to have become a finalist. And then when this year's award was um, incredible for me, I love what I do as a pediatric genetic counselor and the families that I get to work with that allow me to share in their, their journeys, especially sometimes during their darkest times. And so to be able to provide some information, some hope, um, and support to them is is really why why I'm in this field. And so being recognized in that way from the families, it, it meant the world to me. Uh, it really is a great distinction because if you think about the field of genetic counseling and all the people involved, it really is a, it's got to be a pretty, uh, pretty competitive area for distinction like that. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. I guess the uh, next thing I was really curious about is how modern technologies are playing into changing your field and how are things like whole genome sequence of say newborns or even embryos, how, how is that playing a role in predicting genetic conditions? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been incredible. The, the way in which genetic testing has rapidly evolved um, even in the past 10 years. And so we have whole exome sequencing, which is looking at the coding parts of the gene, but now we have whole genome sequencing, which is looking at every part of the gene. So the non-coding sequences um, and also able to look at chromosome changes as well. And so we've been using whole exome sequencing and now whole genome sequencing in critically ill newborns. And so I, I work, um, I used to work mostly in our inpatient service where we're seeing a lot of um, critically ill babies in the NICU setting. And usually these tests, the exome sequencing or genome sequencing can take months to get a result back because again, we're not just looking at one um, book. We're looking at every single word on every single page of all of the encyclopedias. Um, and so this test can take a long time to get back and also to interpret. But now we have options for what we call a critical whole exome sequencing or rapid whole genome sequencing, where we're getting results within five days. Um, and so this has been incredible and very important for some of our most critically ill babies, because it makes a significant difference in how we treat and manage their health and medical concerns. We're often making medical decisions based on the results of this test, um, whether it's a redirection of care, whether it's to get another specialist involved, whether it's to pursue surgery, and so having a diagnosis that quickly really allows us to understand the natural history of the disorder. Um, it allows us to understand the prognosis, um, the severity of the condition, and it all of that enables us to better counsel the family about what to expect and to provide them with the support and resources they need to sometimes make very difficult decisions. How new is that? I mean, five-day turnaround for yeah. whole genome sequencing. I mean, I, we, I mean, we sequenced the genome of a small plant, and it took us years. <laughs> so how, how recent is that benchmark, and do you think that it, that's going to improve? Right. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So with the exome sequencing, we've been doing that, the, the critical one where we get the answer within um, the 
uh, that one is probably more like seven to 10 days with the genome. It's been five days. We've just started doing the genome within the last few months. So it's very, very quick. And our lab at Baylor um, Genetics is, is one of the, the labs that sort of spearheaded this to get these results turned around so quickly, because you can imagine the amount of data that has to be reviewed and not only analyzed, but also interpreted in a way that can be used to make decisions about care in these, these very sick babies. Um, and so it's been incredible to see how fast we were able to get this test done and actually use it. We've used it at least twice um, with getting positive or a diagnostic um, diagnosis in children within our hospital system recently. And so that is information that we're going to collect and, and hopefully publish one day on, on the utility of whole genome sequencing in the newborn center. Um, we've already done that with whole exome sequencing and have shown um, we get a diagnosis around 40 to 50% of the time when we're sending a critical whole exome sequencing. And so usually the, the diagnostic yield for a test like that or the chance that we'll actually get a diagnosis is around 30%. So it's still, even though it's one of our best tests, not 100%, um, but in those babies that have birth defects or really severe health problems, we're getting a diagnosis maybe 40 to 50% of the time, which is higher than any other genetic tests that we have available. That's really, there's so many implications for that because when you have whole genome sequencing, you can find causative alleles potentially that you know about, but also start to develop other associations to understand other modulators of the disease. And I mean, this yeah. is the kind of stuff I love. And um, I, I just think there's so much neat stuff here. So what about some of the uh, d disorders that you commonly come across? What are the most frequent ones that you encounter? Yeah, so... And definitely in the newborn setting, the most common condition we see and the most common genetic condition is, is Down syndrome. So about one in 700 babies is born with Down syndrome. And so we see a lot of um, kiddos with Down syndrome. A lot of them have come to us now because they did receive a prenatal diagnosis through that non-invasive prenatal testing. Sometimes though, we're, we're, the parents are getting the diagnosis once the babies are born, but, but that's also changed in the last few years where a lot of the time parents are now knowing about the diagnosis ahead of time. And so that allows them to kind of go through that grieving, coping, and acceptance process um, during the pregnancy rather than right at the time of birth. Um, some of the other conditions we see commonly are other chromosome conditions, such as Turner syndrome. I know you had a guest on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Annette Bacher, um, with the Children's Tumor Foundation. And um, I work very closely with with neurofibromatosis, um, which that sort of their main condition that they focus on. So we see a lot of neurofibromatosis, other connective tissue disorders, such as Marfan syndrome. Um, and so just, just a lot. I think a lot of people think genetic conditions are rare and individually they are rare, but collectively they are very common and they make up a large portion of, of hospital admissions to children's hospitals. Um, and so we, we see a lot of these different conditions. Have we really kind of flip the page from the very frequent conditions and think about the rare ones. What's the most rare or unusual condition that you've had to work with? Yeah. So there's so many conditions that we see that also are very rare. And, and with the advent of exome sequencing, we've been able to diagnose and discover new disease gene associations. And so one thing I tell my families is, you know, we have about 20,000 genes, but we only know what about 4,000 of those genes actually do. And so when I tell them that our chance of finding a diagnosis with this test is only about 30%, 
I say that doesn't mean that the test is negative. It just means it's negative right now because there are so many yet to be discovered genetic conditions. Um, so this has been a really powerful tool for us, but at the same time, there may be only a handful of individuals reported with a certain condition in the literature. And so that can become a challenge when, when I'm counseling a family, because, you know, as you can imagine, receiving a genetic diagnosis can be very difficult for a family. There can be sadness, fear, going through the grieving process, but receiving a diagnosis where your child is maybe one in five children reported in the world, that adds an additional layer of uncertainty because you don't really know what to expect and it can feel very isolating. Um, and so one of the things that, that we strive to do as genetic counselors is to really facilitate those connections between families to provide support and hope and information. And so I've seen some very rare conditions where I haven't even heard of the gene before, um, where there's no established support group available. And so what I try to do to empower the family to start something. So I'll say, you know, if there isn't anything established, why don't we start a Facebook group? Why don't we start a closed Facebook group? Um, just to find others who might share a similar journey to them so that they don't feel so alone because it can be very scary to just feel like you're the only one that you know of that has a condition. Because there are other families out there, it just can be really difficult to find them. You see, I, I love this part and I didn't really think about this before. And I'm, that's why I'm so glad that I'm talking to you because if I made these misconceptions, I'm sure others did too. But you really put the counselor in genetic counselor, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not just egghead science stuff. It really is advising a family on how to uh, maybe live with or treat or uh, cope with the psychology side. And uh, so uh, do you, how much does your job continue after, say, the birth of a newborn? Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one aspect that, you know, why a lot of people get into genetic counseling, you know, we're fascinated by the science, I've loved genetics, but also you need to understand the flip side, the human side, and that this is not done in isolation. Um, this is a family that it impacts. And so this is one aspect of their child, it doesn't necessarily define who they are. And so I feel like in all aspects of clinical care, the work of a genetic counselor, even genetics, continues well after that diagnosis is made or established. I feel like that's sort of, you know, day one, now that we have that diagnosis, everything leading up to that has been their diagnostic odyssey, their journey to find that diagnosis. Now that we have it, our work isn't done. And so what we do, we, we try to stay on top of research studies. Are there clinical trials or other opportunities that may impact our patients? I often like to work with support organizations and thinking about the siblings, because a lot of times siblings might get left out and they might be forgotten. Many other specialists will focus on their particular area of the body, such as cardiologists are focusing on the heart or um, renal doctors are focused on the kidney and things like that, which is critical. But in genetics, I like to think that we look a little bit more holistically at the individual as a whole, rather than the sum of their body parts to really understand what their needs might be, how their genetic diagnosis impacts not just their health, but also their well-being and what potential management or treatments might be impacted given their genetic diagnosis. And so it's a relationship that we have with families for years um, where we will see them year over year and we really get to know them. And, and because I think also one of the things that we need to be naive to know, we don't know everything. We don't necessarily know what this will look like when they're 20 years old. And so we are learning as much from the families as they're learning from us, if not more. It's really an interesting part of this. And I guess kind of the flip side is that you're talking about genetic diagnosis and how you'd help 
you know, help family work through it. Well, what about the families that are doing their own genetic diagnosis? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you have 23andMe, you have Ancestry, they're sending reports that it seems like the way people interpret risk data is really off and that there's got to be a lot of noise that you feel from these types of services. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. For, yes. I mean, and this is a sometimes a touchy subject in our field, but first I will say that I love that genetics is being brought into people's homes um, and that people are really interested in genetics. I think many times Lately, I've, I've learned one of the things we often do is ask families, you know, parents, what is your country of origin? What is your ancestry? And now families will be able to tell me down to each individual country where they're from because they've done at-home genetic testing or Ancestry.com or 23andMe. However, there are many limitations to the direct-to-consumer genetic testing options, and we wouldn't want anyone to make any medical decisions based on those results alone without discussing them with a geneticist or a genetic counselor. And so genetic information and, and results from these companies sometimes can be interpreted in an incorrect way. They might give false reassurance um, that everything's okay, that you don't have to worry about a certain condition. Or on the flip side, they might give you information that makes you very anxious thinking that you have a condition or, or a risk of a certain condition where that might not be the case. And so I would always discuss any concerning results with a healthcare provider before making any medical decisions, but also I think encouraging the individual to really review the privacy and data sharing information from the companies to know what and how your genetic information and data will be shared or used, um, because I think that's a fine print and that should be pretty transparent, but it's not, it's not always. And people think, oh, I'm just doing this you know, cheek swab for fun. And, and I have some kits I still haven't done any yet um, because I, I just wonder about how my, my data is going to be used. And I'm a little bit cautious about that. And so I think it's wonderful that people are interested in genetics and I think it's made it a little bit more mainstream, but I would just, you know, throw a little caution to, to be careful what you interpret from those and, and definitely don't make any decisions based on those tests before getting, um, before seeing an actual genetics provider. So we live in this era where we're able to make predictions about potential genetic disease. And, and do you have any thoughts or maybe how you would advise parents about gene therapy, like how you would be able to reverse genetic lesion with some of the modern tools there? And is that some conversation that's happening in your discipline? Yes, definitely. And I think this is one of the most exciting aspects of working in genetics. It's the speed with which gene identification and genetic testing and now gene therapy or gene editing has occurred. Um, sometimes though, correcting the gene doesn't necessarily always correlate to correcting the condition, but what we've been able to do recently with certain treatments of conditions like spinal muscular atrophy, this is a condition where um, historically children born with the most common type of SMA or spinal muscular atrophy usually did not survive past a couple of years of life. But now we have a gene therapy where we're able to correct the uh, genetic abnormality or to modify it so that children are living longer. They're able to develop and progress and reach milestones. And this is incredible. And so it's not necessarily a life sentence anymore where we're talking, you know, we're having very different conversations with parents now about the outcome, the prognosis. Um, similar for conditions like cystic fibrosis, you mentioned um, gene modulators. And this is a condition where they have modulators now that are mutation specific or variant specific, um, where we're actually 
doing targeted therapy based on what that gene, how it affects the protein and trying to correct that protein imbalance, whether it's an imbalance, whether it's not formed correctly, whether there's not enough of it. Um, similar for conditions like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we're doing uh, gene therapy with, with individuals who have certain types of variants within that gene and, and finding ways to not necessarily reverse everything or correct everything, but at least modify the conditions so that there's an improved quality of life um, and improved outcomes. That's really great. I, uh, I have a uh, interview coming next week. So this week we're speaking with the genetic counselor. Next week we're speaking with a company that has some uh, novel ways of delivering corrections to specific tissues, and it's using a non-viral vector. So it's using a nanoparticle delivered uh, strategy that actually in, say, uh, embryonic tissue or in a child could reverse a rare metabolic disorder in, a, in the liver and change, you know, do the gene edit. And so this is just such a fascinating, rapidly moving field. And, you know, I'm really excited that you're able to join me today. Well, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. And I, I always love talking about genetics. So <laughs> is, um, is there any place that people can follow you online, like Twitter or other social media? We have our Baylor College of Medicine genetic counseling program. Um, and so for any people who are interested in the field, um, I would encourage them to, to look at that. There's a Twitter and also an Instagram for that. Excellent. Yeah, I'll actually include the link in the show notes along with this particular one. But is your school, is Baylor one of the leaders in this area for training the next generation of genetic counselors? I certainly think so. That was I've been at Baylor for 15 years. Um, and the reason why I came is because it is, I believe, the best place to learn um, genetics and clinical genetics, medical genetics and human genetics. And so um, I feel that we're at the forefront of genetic testing, genetic diagnosis, and also genetic counseling. And so it's it's been the best place to be. Awesome. Well, I'll see if I can send some of my best and brightest your way. Uh, we, uh, we, I, I teach molecular biology, and there's a lot of students interested in what their future will be. And I would send them this way in a heartbeat. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a Florida alumni, so you know I'm always happy to talk to any fellow Gators. And we had one of our students that just graduated also went to Florida, and we have a student this year that um, also just came from, from UF. So... Oh, that's really cool. Uh, the, the, the circle's complete. Well, yes. thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope if you uh, have something really cool to talk about in the future, give me a holler and we'll do it again. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Tell a friend, especially people who are interested in genetic testing, uh, those couples who may be conceiving or going through in vitro or families that maybe have a history of some unusual problem. Uh, this is a really good way to connect with some expertise. Um, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. 
We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
One, two, three, four, five. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, stop. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.